drugs. Rights. Quality of life. Recovery. Harm reduction. Advocacy. Policy. Treatment. Stigma. Drugs Uncut. The Scottish Drugs Forum Podcast. So hi there everyone, welcome to Drugs Uncut, the Scottish Drugs Forum podcast. Uh, today we are joined by one of our recent webinar hosts, uh, Andrew McCauley from uh, Health Protection Scotland, who's joining us today, along with Kirsten Horsburgh and Austin Smith. Of course, my name's Andy Coffey. Uh, how's everyone getting on this evening? Yeah. Very well. Good, thank you. So usually we are recording uh, the crack of dawn early in the morning, but this is our first evening podcast. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how things go. Maybe it's a bit more mellow. Uh, this evening. Um, so yeah, so, so Andy, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and a little bit about your roles that you, because you, you kind of have two roles pretty much, they're almost uh, of dual importance. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, I do have two roles, so my week is split between the NHS where I work in Health Protection Scotland, uh, which is the, what they would call a special health board, which is the National Health Board with responsibility for infectious disease and environmental hazard. Uh, which has now recently been subsumed within the new organisation which is called Public Health Scotland uh, and at Health Protection Scotland I am, uh, my job is there as principal scientist but effectively I lead the bloodborne virus team there uh, under the guidance of Professor David Goldberg and the other half of my week I'm at Glasgow Caledonian University where I am a senior research fellow Again, within uh, the bloodborne virus research team, but also with responsibilities uh, in the area of substance use under the guidance of Professor Sean Hutchinson. Excellent. And a few of you who are um, who have visited uh, any of our conferences or perhaps even been on our SDF YouTube account will recognise uh, Andy from from quite a few um, of our conferences just because he's, his work covers such a wide gambit of areas. But one of the particular things that you were talking about on the webinar last week, so this is one of our SDF COVID-19 webinars in particular, was uh, HIV and the HIV outbreak in Glasgow and how the COVID-19 outbreak is, is potentially affecting that. Um, so first of all, how was it, how was it being a webinar host, <laughs> do, you, do you do many of them or was, it, was this kind of like a new, a new thing? Uh, no, that was my first webinar ever. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was a bit nerve-wracking before it, but I actually really enjoyed it. thought it was a good, well, it was well run, which I think well organised always helps these kind of things. Uh, we were well prepared for it uh, and I think the audience participation was good. There's lots of different questions at the end, which is usually a good indication that people were interested and engaged with what we were talking about so so yeah it was good fun uh, it was good it, and it was good to be back talking about uh, drug user issues and bloodborne virus issues because it feels as if COVID-19 has consumed everything for so long that uh, it's been a while since we've got back to business as usual so it was good from that point of view as well. I chaired my first webinar the other day it was quite a bizarre experience and I had to do it from my bedroom so I had uh, some pre-work to prepare my screen so that the whole country didn't see my bed in the background. That <laughs> was interesting. The composition was great. Oh yeah I've completely tidied my room today for this because I, I watched the webinar back for a bit of self-reflection and realised that I had by far the messiest room in the whole uh, scene so I uh, gave it a good tidy as soon as I'd done that and put a picture up so I had a bit more of a scenic background. I was thinking that because I, I recognised the the wall and the, and the window but I saw the picture and everything I thought yeah that's as good you've made an effort even though we're, this is all sound. There's no more children's furniture yeah. 
<laughs> so I suppose from a public health point of view, and this occurred to me when I was sitting doing that the webinar with you and doing the questions, was we've now got three crises uh, in Glasgow at least. We've got the HIV uh, outbreak, we've got the drug death situation, uh, which is across Scotland obviously and abroad and across the UK, uh, and now we've got COVID. But the, the interesting thing, I suppose, from your point of view, is your conversations with non-specialist colleagues are more informed, perhaps, on the grounds that people, everybody knows what, what epidemiology is, and everybody knows how we can contain an outbreak. Uh, and it's really quite straightforward. It's really just about testing, tracking and tr testing, and uh, uh, treating people uh, and making sure people engage with services. But when I was first worked in this at all, and any engagement at all around the HIV outbreak, it, it, it seemed a lot more complicated and a lot more messy. Uh, and you'll remember those days as well. So what, what was that HIV outbreak in this group, in this uh, group of uh, people injecting drugs like in the early days? And why was it so difficult to get a hold of initially? Uh, well, I think, I think first of all, it was, it, it, I think people were largely quite unprepared for it because we had had... We had 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 such a long spell without something of this, of this of this like and of this magnitude. So, a lot of the services were not necessarily set up to deal with it. So that required some service, uh, reconfiguration. Equally, the the staff involved, I think, uh, were not uh, It's not something they were used to dealing with. So there was a training issue there uh, as well. Uh, I think one of the few things that we did have in place early on which did help was the epidemiology so we did have good data so we were able to make we were able to characterize and understand uh, the, the the kind of drivers of the outbreak and uh, the kind of characteristics of those affected uh, quite early on uh, and we've been quite blessed with that throughout the outbreak to have reasonably good data but I think, like anything, whether it's behaviour change at an individual level or whether it's behaviour change at a professional level, that's taken that's taken a bit more time, uh, to try and move uh, staff groups that perhaps uh, didn't work together in the past to get them working more closely together, and move models of care that had been established for ten, twenty, even thirty years into a kind of different environment uh, to help us deal with this this outbreak which which now I mean we're calling it an outbreak but I think we're now in year six yeah. it's almost become an endemic part of what we live in in Glasgow which is which is a shame really uh, that, that that's happened but uh, but I think there's there's been a lot of good that's come out of it but some of it's taken more time uh, than others yeah yeah I, I what I found fascinating in and I was at a few of the critical incident meetings was that you had workers who were very uh, specialist workers working in HIV, mainly with uh, men of sex with men, gay men, and uh, were used to risk-taking behaviours and, and, and patterns of behaviour who were appalled, appalled at the risk-taking behaviour involved by people who injected drugs just because they'd never considered it and they couldn't see a parallel between the two. And so you're really starting at the beginning with people who were specialists in a harm reduction approach and so on and giving people very basic information, but they, they, they struggled with the communication of that and the communication with that group of, that group of patients as they would have seen them as, as nurses. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, I think harm reduction wasn't necessarily new to these guys because harm reduction is a core part of HIV prevention among 
men who sex with men, but you're right, it's a completely different population with different risk behaviours, with different backgrounds, with different, uh, there's different uh, needs there to be addressed beyond simply the HIV. For, for a lot of these individuals, HIV was not their first priority, uh, whereas they're used to working with a population with a very strong patient advocacy group yeah. as well, who are constantly championing their rights. So uh, it, for me, that's been one of the, I said there has been, you do get positive things to come out of outbreaks, quite extreme situations, and one of them has been uh, the shift of that very traditional Brownlee service to become a much more community-facing service. who are very dedicated now in working uh, with people in jet drugs. It's been remarkable how that service has had adapted and, and, in fact, led the way with a lot of the responses that we now see as part of normal uh, in the city. And and the other thing that occurred to me was about testing. So it was people... People you're working with, uh, people in recovery, people still uh, using drugs, people in and about uh, drug treatment services can remember their last uh, hepatitis test, at least being offered one. They're, most of them are aware of their status or claim to be aware of their status. But when you're talking about HIV, HIV testing had, had kind of, it didn't have the same profile. It wasn't done in the same extent and it, people didn't think of, of, them, of themselves and maybe thought, weren't thought of as by workers as being a group at risk. And is, is that changed? Is that developed? Yeah, so that's probably the area we've been working on most in the last couple of months. So, as you know, we've got a PhD student, Kirsten, who's working in this area, and she's moved from kind of project to project on the outbreak. And one of the things we spent most time on, probably in the last three or four months, uh, has been looking at the testing, uh, not just the testing strategies, but how that's impacted on the rates of testing. And you're right, for a long time uh, before the outbreak, uh, or even in the early stages of the outbreak, HIV testing among people inject drugs was was very very limited. Uh, it only happened in very uh, particular situations. It wasn't routine, uh, because it wasn't felt as if it was necessary, uh, because there've been so limited reports of people being diagnosed with HIV in this population for so long. Uh, and I think had we had a better testing strategy before that, then we might have picked things up. Uh, perhaps earlier than we did. So that, that that has been one of the learning points that we've had to really draw from this. And certainly at the onset of the outbreak, the data is very clear that Glasgow City Centre had the lowest HIV testing rates in Scotland. Uh, it, and that shouldn't surprise us, given where the outbreak emerged. But we've seen a complete reverse round there now, and the data shows that Glasgow City Centre has the highest HIV testing rates in Scotland amongst people inject drugs which is a reflection on all the different work that's went in uh, to services in Glasgow City Centre in terms of the enhanced uh, availability of testing around the city and the different outlets where people can get tested. Uh, where we haven't seen the similar bounce is across the rest of Greater Glasgow and Clyde, uh, and that the testing rates there, you would probably say, are still a bit suboptimal. Given where we probably should be five or six years into an outbreak, we're still talking only around maybe 1 in 2 or 50% of people who've had a test in the last 12 months. And we really should be much higher than that after five or six years uh, of an outbreak. And that's one of the things that um, when I'm going around Scotland, well, not so much at the moment, but when I'm in different meetings and talking with people from different areas, I always highlight a lot because really what's happened in Glasgow City Centre should be a message to other health board areas because people who are injecting drugs in Glasgow City 
um, are not necessarily um, going to just stay in Glasgow City Centre or people might be travelling in and it's so important for other areas as well to be doing regular testing. And I, and I think you know what what probably happened at the start was that my background's in nursing and I worked in a drug treatment service and you know HIV was wasn't really discussed it wasn't really a thing that was kind of on the agenda to be talked about with people it was there was a lot of discussions with people about hep C um so HIV probably became a thing that everybody got a bit complacent about um and you know this kind of outbreak has just kind of shown that we shouldn't be forgetting about it and it can easily come back yeah absolutely and i think the the impact of that i think uh, at a professional level we've seen we've seen lots of innovation which i think is great uh, but th- it's been difficult for some people to embrace that as part of their day-to-day work we've seen th- that's clearly been uh, evidenced in terms of trying to get people to to adopt dry blood spot testing as a routine part of a kind of follow-up appointment or a or of a or of a any sort of engagement with individuals, whereas some other groups, particularly in the third sector, eh, have taken it on board eh, pretty eh, pretty naturally, and the dry blood spot test is a fairly easy eh, thing to do. We train our NSI staff to do it eh, in just a couple of hours, and they be- can become quite adept at doing this for hundreds or even thousands of people across the country. So, I think th- I think that's been one of the, the biggest challenges is to get people over that initial that initial barrier to try and bring that into part of the kind of normal everyday uh, business, which it really should be, especially in the midst of an outbreak like this. And Andrew, you, um, and during your webinar, um, uh, webinar session that you did last week for us, um, you mentioned that, um, so traditionally, well, predominantly the outbreak has been uh, within Glasgow City Centre, but through the testing that you've been doing through the Needle Exchange surveillance initiative so that's an essay that you just mentioned there and uh, you've been finding out that there's that actually they're starting to get some hot spots and pockets in surrounding areas just like Kirsten was saying there people you know do move in and move out um uh, different locations around around the kind of the city and, and the surrounding area so can you tell us a little bit more, more about those kind of hot spots yeah so we've just recently completed uh, well almost completed but COVID-19 got in the way of is completely finishing off Nessie this time uh, but we did manage to complete a full set of uh, sampling in Glasgow. And one of the things when we looked at the HIV prevalence was that things look relatively stable in the city centre, which is which is positive and it's a good reflection of all the efforts that have went into the city centre in terms of control uh, and prevention there, which we know about the enhanced IEP, the, the, drug, the, the van uh, and a lot of the other services that have been put in place. Uh, but what we have picked up is, as you see, these, these clusters of cases, uh, one to the north of the city centre, one to the south of the city centre, and one just to the, the, the east of the city centre, uh, bordering on uh, uh, NHS Lanarkshire area. Uh, and that's indicative of a drift of the outbreak now moving out with the city centre. And the, the worrying thing about that is these pockets of infection we found in these areas largely look like undiagnosed infections. We're able to do a bit of work in the background to determine if, uh, based on an individual's response uh, to the questionnaire and the test results, to determine if these are known infections. And because Nessie's an anonymous survey, we don't give individuals their, their, their results back in that way. 
Uh, but it does look as if we've now got uh, clusters of undiagnosed infections popping up in these areas, which underlines the importance that testing shouldn't just be seen as a Glasgow city centre issue, because that's where the outbreak was. Testing is important everywhere because, as Kirsten's rightly highlighted, people transit in and out the city centre, whether it's for economic reasons, whether it's for to purchase their drugs, whether it's for shopping, whatever it is. And we've got Preston in previous years of other infectious disease outbreaks drifting out with Glasgow. The botulism outbreak is a classic example of that, where we picked up lots of botulism cases outside, even the NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, linked to people travelling in and out uh, of Glasgow uh, for uh, whatever their business was. And Sorry, we've mentioned Nessie quite a few times. So for those who have not heard of it or for those who are not from Scotland who think it's a mythical creature, maybe you could just explain a bit more about what Nessie is and um, how that um, came about and how long it's been around and what you do with the information that you get from Nessie. Uh, yeah, well, Nessie, Nessie predates, certainly predates me. Uh, Nessie goes all the way back to... Uh, goes all the way back probably about 20 years now, maybe longer, uh, when there used to be uh, studies predominantly run in Glasgow. Uh, and they were run, it was a van actually they used. They used to go around different hotspot areas in Glasgow in a van. Uh, and they would tempt people to the van with a can of iron brew and a Mars bar. No way. I didn't know that. Very Scottish. Deep fried or, or just or just your regular? Raw as we say. Just a regular. That was the that was the love to shop voucher of its day, uh, in terms of what people got to participate. And uh, people would come along and they would complete a very short questionnaire and provide a, a blood spot sample. In fact, at that time it wasn't a blood spot sample, it was a saliva sample. Uh, and it was people like Avril Taylor, who's now recently retired, uh, my boss David Goldberg, and others that set up these initial uh, Glasgow studies, kind of bio-behavioural surveillance studies, as you would call them. Uh, and then eventually, when the Hep C Action Plan uh, came in uh, back in 2005, there was, as part of that policy document, there was uh, a recommendation in there that there would be a national Hep C surveillance programme across needle exchanges. And that was, I suppose, the foundation of what Nessie became uh, out of that. Uh, obviously, we had the van as the kind of precedent model, and then it was scaled up uh, much bigger after the Hep C action plan came in. So in 2008, uh, Nessie was formally introduced, and every two years since then, uh, we have run the study. So basically what it involves is we recruit a team of field workers, uh, at the university and they go out across mainland Scotland to all the, the 11 health boards across mainland Scotland to uh, a representative sample of IEP services, injecting equipment provision services across the country. Uh, and anybody coming in to those services for either needle exchange or for opiate substitution therapy because we know many of the IEP services are also community pharmacies that provide uh, drug treatment. Uh, they are offered to take part in the study and this, this could be people who are actively injecting or people who have formally injected but are now in opiate substitution therapy and if they do agree to participate in the study the field worker would take them in usually to the consultation room and they will complete a short interview administered questionnaire and they will provide a dried blood spot sample 
and it's that dry blood spot sample that we use to monitor the instance and prevalence of bloodborne viruses like hepatitis C and HIV amongst people who inject drugs across Scotland. But the questionnaire has really grown from a fairly modest-sized questionnaire back in the day, which largely covered hepatitis C and risk behaviours related to hepatitis C because it, was, it came from the Hepatitis C Action Plan, to now covering a whole broad range of issues in relation to people who inject drugs, including their demographics, their service engagement, uh, their risk behaviours, their uh, utilisation of uh, wider services, their general health, uh, stigma, etc, uh, etc. Et and it's a very dynamic questionnaire that evolves over time uh, to try and adapt to the new things that uh, emerge uh, across society. So we've, we talked briefly about drug consumption rooms. We brought in some questions about that to help provide some baseline data ahead of the proposed facility in Glasgow. We added questions about naloxone back in 2011 to help monitor uh, the rollout of naloxone. Uh, there have been other questions brought in about alcohol, etc. Et so it's, it, it offers us a lot, Nessie, in terms of what we can do to understand this population. And a final point I would say is it's fairly unique. There are, although there is biobehavioural surveillance of people inject drugs across the world, and it happens in different countries, there are only really four equivalent serial studies that happen regularly. Four. Uh, one in Australia called ANSPAS, I never get that acronym right. Uh, one in England and Wales called the UAM. Uh, and there is another one in Canada, which name escapes me. And then there's Nessie as well. But Nessie comes fares very favourably in terms of the coverage uh, of the population. And that the Nessie work's really been quite critical in highlighting the prevalence of HIV in the city, in Glasgow in particular. And um, it's estimated that there's around 500 people injecting in public places in Glasgow City. That was from the Taking Away the Chaos report, the uh, health needs assessment for people who inject drugs in public that was done when the first cases of HIV were starting to be identified in the city. So what is the current scale of the outbreak in Glasgow? Yes, well, Nessie very much reflected the mood, if you like, because uh, Nessie, we didn't test for HIV in Nessie across the country until this really happened. The only places we tested for HIV uh, were, we only tested it, we didn't even test it every two years. There were a few sweeps where we hadn't tested for HIV because there were so few cases. And then the only areas we tested were NHS Grace of Glasgow and Clyde and NHS Lothian. We didn't test across the country because it wasn't felt as if it was worth it. So even Nessie was an extension of this... Uh, Apathy's not the right word, but this, uh, th- this, this approach uh, to HIV across the country... So just by chance, we were doing the Nessie data collection in Glasgow when the outbreak was identified. So at that point, uh, it was agreed with the steering group that we should really extend uh, the the Nessie testing, uh, not just in Glasgow, but across to Lothian as well at that point. So we had a comparator to see if the outbreak had spread uh, there. And then obviously we've conducted HIV testing all across the country uh, since then in Nessie. The levels in Glasgow uh, at peak uh, were 11%, so prevalence of 11% in Glasgow city centre, and it looks as if the levels are still the same uh, now. Uh, when we did our most recent sweep, uh, the levels were again within the same range as that previously. So 11%, sometimes you talk to people and they say, oh, that's not that, that's not a lot, 11% is quite modest. 
but the levels had been 1% and very stable at 1% or below 1% uh, for 20 or 30 years in Glasgow. So that this is a tenfold increase we've seen in a relatively short space of time. Uh, now, you mentioned there that there's an estimated 500 people who inject drugs in Glasgow City Centre. That estimate, uh, I, I suppose there's, there's always interest in how accurate that estimate is or how what the variation is around that estimate. So that estimate's probably a, a midpoint of where it is. It's, it's probably, it's sometimes a bit higher than that and at other times a bit lower than that. Uh, and it shouldn't be inferred because we are saying there's 10% of people inject drugs in Glasgow and a population of 500 that there should only be 50 infections. That would be the wrong way to infer, uh, infer those two figures because, as we've said, this is a very transient population. People come in and out all the time. It's not a fixed 500. Uh, it'll be changing all the time through people's circumstances, whether people... Uh, unfortunately die or whether people become homeless and are added to the pool uh, as well uh, and we know that there's been roughly uh, 170 or more people diagnosed as part of the outbreak so Nessie gives you an idea of uh, who has been diagnosed but also potentially the size of the undiagnosed population in the city uh, so we should never just equate that 500 with that 10% and put the two of them together in that way. No, that's useful. And the other thing, I suppose, for a wider audience is that some of these distances are actually tiny. We're talking about four and five miles from the city centre. You're into another health board area and another community altogether. And actually, as you said about the Edinburgh comparison, Edinburgh's only 40, 45 miles away, but there doesn't seem to be that commuting. People don't seem to travel any real distance. But of course, for an HIV outbreak to spread, we'd only need one person to, to move uh, and move down to Ayrshire or, or to move to Aberdeen or whatever. Uh, so that yeah, so that monitoring should be going on. Exactly, and I think it, I mean drug users in Scotland tend to be quite territorial. The people in the west of Scotland typically stick to the west of Scotland and the people in the east of Scotland typically stick to the east of Scotland. And we even see uh, different drug-taking patterns across the two areas, probably dominated by the supply routes into the different areas. Uh, but we've obviously seen things like the NPS injecting phenomenon we've seen in Lothian didn't really become a feature in the west of Scotland. And similarly, the cocaine injecting phenomenon that we've witnessed in uh, the west of Scotland uh, has not really taken off to the same extent in the east uh, side of the country uh, in the same way. And I suppose we're quite fortunate that we've not really seen uh, any major drift of the Glasgow outbreak across to the east side of the country. We've seen pockets of activity in some of the neighbouring health boards, but not uh, any uh, over to the Lothians or, or the Fife or Grampian areas. And the other thing that Nessie looks at in a lot of detail is about naloxone. So I obviously we have to talk about that. I think when I first joined Scottish Drugs Forum, Andy, you were... Uh, leading or chairing the Scottish Naloxone Network group. I'm sure we exchanged a few emails where you managed to call me Kirsty quite a few times, so that set us off on the wrong foot. Um, <laughs> but, um, I remember that. <laughs> I, I still remember. It scarred me. Um, so Clearly not go over it yet either. <laughs> no, I'll remind you frequently. But um, yeah, so could you just mention a bit about your background with the naloxone programme and then we can speak about some of the stuff that comes from Nessie around it. Yeah, well, I suppose 
I've worked a lot on HIV over the past uh, five or six years because I joined Health Protection Scotland in 2015 and I think that was one of the first things, I mean the outbreak had literally just started and it was one of the first things I got involved in and it's funny to think that we're still working on it now but before then, yeah, I suppose the, the thing that I probably worked most on uh, was probably in the lock zone uh, and you're right, I remember, you, I think it may have been your first day, Kirsten, when Stephen brought you along to Elphinstone House, I think, when we were based there at West Regent Street. And I do, I think I did call you Kirsty that day as well. <laughs> so do you, I do remember. I, I, do, I do remember that first meeting, though, uh, when Stephen brought you along, uh, which seems like a, a long, long time ago now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Naloxone, uh, I suppose my first experience of Naloxone was when I joined... Uh, so before I worked at national level, I worked in Lanarkshire and I worked with the alcohol and drug action teams, the, the ADA, which is now, as everybody knows them, as ADPs, Alcohol and Drug Partnerships. And I worked there uh, from 2005, I think, till around 2009. Uh, and when I joined there in 2005, one of the things I was asked to pick up was to look at a project that they tried to develop a few years back. Uh, called a naloxone pilot uh, and to me I'd never heard of naloxone at that point uh, so I had to go away and do some reading but the reason they were asking me to look at it at that time was because of the change in the regulations the, the Medicines Act at the time in 2005 there was a change in the amendments uh, to make uh, naloxone uh, exempt at that point uh, for people to use it uh, who wouldn't be prosecuted so uh, I went away and did some homework and started talking to different people and there was actually quite a good plan already in place at that time in Lanarkshire. Uh, and we, uh, myself, Maureen Woods, who's the harm reduction team leader there and is still, uh, even though she's retired, she's back doing some good harm reduction stuff part-time. Uh, myself, Maureen, George Lindsay, who was the chief pharmacist at the time, and a guy called Derek Luted, who was based at the ambulance service, uh, between the four of us, we developed uh, a naloxone pilot, uh, a quite a small pilot at the time. It was only 19 people that were enrolled into the pilot. Uh, and even back then, it was the old mini-jet kits and the really flimsy cardboard boxes. I remember spending a full day going round Airdrie and Cope Bridge to different opticians looking for spectacle cases to put the naloxone kits in because we didn't think the kits were robust enough for people to carry on their person and we were worried that people might get them confiscated if they were found on them so we thought if we put them in a spectacle case that would make them a bit more discreet uh, in terms of that uh, so uh, that never really stuck they ended up being in a big bright yellow box but <laughs> maybe less said about that the better yeah <laughs> uh, so yeah we we rolled it out and I mean there was a bit of kind of friendly competition at the time because Glasgow were trying to roll out their own pilot and theirs was being done almost with the advice of emergency medicine through SAM and ours was being done with advice through the ambulance service so there was some slight nuances there. Uh, but yeah, my job in there, I was just a fairly junior research officer at the time but my job there was to coordinate everything and collect all the data. Uh, and at that time, even just 19 people being involved, we managed to get somebody uh, who we managed to find somebody who used the kit. So he came back and he used the kit in one of his mates. Uh, and uh, for me, that was a really important, well, even not just personally hearing the, the guy's account, but I think for my career, that was a quite an important moment because it really kind of dawned on me how important uh, this, this concept was. It all felt a bit abstract at the time because 
people talked about the benefits of it, but I hadn't really first-hand heard an account uh, of what it was like. Uh, and I ended up, various things came out of that for me. It was my first proper research paper that I authored. I ended up deciding that I was going to do an Aloxone PhD after that because I really was really fascinated by how you could take this piece of technology or this medicine and put it into the hands of individuals and turn them into effectively what was lifesavers uh, at that point. So uh, I kind of stuck at, there was obviously other pieces of work going on, but I stuck at Naloxone because I was really interested in it and really developed a taste for all the different aspects of it and the, the research that was going all across the world at that time uh, and really started to build up networks. Uh, and I was fortunate enough then to get a job at national level, which allowed me to do a bit more development work on Naloxone. Uh, which got me a seat at the table for the National Naloxone Advisory Group, which was effectively the group that put together, I suppose, the bones or the the, the early structures of the national programme, which SDF went on to develop uh, much bigger and better than, than we could even imagine at that stage. It was very much the early principles we developed, myself and Carol Hunter and a few other people. Uh, and as part of that, we set up this group called the, the SCON Group. I think it is still called the SCON Group. Uh, the Scottish Naloxone Network. There was never any scones, which was the ongoing joke. People thought they were going to come along and get a scone, but they never, ever got a scone. <laughs> uh, but that group was initially set up to inform my PhD. I was initially going to do uh, a cohort study across three areas, and it was people like Lisa Ross, myself, uh, Carol, and a couple of others. Uh, and when we, my PhD eventually changed tack to a kind of different uh, methodology, so I didn't really need that structure, but we felt as if it functioned well enough that we started inviting other people onto it as the naloxone programme started rolling out across different health boards uh, after Lanarkshire Highland and Glasgow had led the way and then eventually we started getting virtually all the health boards attending uh, and it became a kind of peer network for practitioners who were at the front line trying to roll out these programmes and I, I, I think I became quite proud of that eventually that it, it stuck and people were still using it even after I eventually kind of rode back from it uh, as my responsibilities took me in a different uh, direction. So, so yeah, naloxone, I think the culmination for me was obviously my PhD, which took a lot longer than I intended it to take. Uh, but my PhD was on naloxone and it was very much about lived experience of people. So it goes all the way back to that first guy in Lanarkshire that used it. That eventually became the thrust of my PhD, finding more people like him uh, who had used it uh, to save the lives of their peers. And also talking to people who had had the the opportunity but perhaps didn't use it and trying to understand why and the circumstances around that uh, and I spent a year uh, in the needle exchange up in Spittle Street uh, interviewing people about their naloxone experiences and that eventually uh, became what was my PhD a few years ago. So yeah naloxone is something that is a bit of a kind of baby to me. I've kind of uh, kept it close to my chest for a long time and even nowadays uh, I'm still involved in uh, naloxone work, uh, not quite as intensively as I was before, but I've never really quite given up and I probably never will give it up, I think, uh, one of these things. Well, you'll be pleased to know that the SCON group does still exist and it's now chaired by my colleague, Mary Beth. Um, and we had our first SCON Zoom call the other day, which obviously Aww. doesn't allow for the actual scones either. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so no, it's, it's still still going strong. And there's probably people on that that were probably uh, 
the early ones, I would imagine. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Yeah. So it involves um, every health board area has a local naloxone lead, so that's who makes up the, the group now. And just to touch on as well, so one of the main bits of... Well, you've done loads of research on the Scottish Naloxone programme, but one of the main bits, I guess, is about the one showing a potential reduction in drug-related deaths following prison release. So I wonder if you could just mention quickly about about that yeah so i think our aid our naloxone research has always been about i think the theme we would call it is about myth busting we were always wanting to bust some of the myths that were out there so we've done various pieces we've done bits on the lived experience about people to basically i think that was born out the myth that people would use it as a weapon or that kind of thing so we didn't find anything like that we did stuff on ambulance attendance overdose because it was a myth that people wouldn't phone ambulances anymore when the locks would come in. And then the study you're referring to was about a prison release, so one of the highest risk periods for overdose uh, is upon liberation from prison, because in theory people's tolerance reduces when they're in prison, and then when they're released, if they go to use again, perhaps at similar levels before they went into prison, uh, then they'll put themselves at risk of a opioid overdose. And what do you say to folks? Because quite often I get it quite a lot about the naloxone programme, uh, given my role in, in coordinating it, is that, well, why is it that you've got this fantastic naloxone programme? Um, you've, you say that there's now around 60,000 naloxone kits being supplied across the country, yet your drug-related deaths continue to rise. What sort of uh, comment would you have to that? Yeah, that's a question we get quite a lot. You probably get it more than I do, but uh, yeah, I've had it quite a few times over the years. Uh, well, first and foremost, it's always about reaffirming that naloxone saves lives. Naloxone works. There's no, it's undeniable uh, in relation to that. But naloxone shouldn't be viewed in isolation. Naloxone does save people's lives, but there's a whole host of other things that have got to be in place to uh, protect individuals and to support individuals uh, uh, whether it's in the recovery or whether it's in uh, other parts of their life because naloxone uh, is a lifesaver but naloxone is not uh, the only piece uh, of the puzzle it's not a panacea in that way it requires other things like other harm reduction interventions like OST it requires uh, IEP it requires uh, psychosocial support there's a whole host of other things in there but uh, I, th- I think it's right that people have asked that question because we've never really Certainly in the UK, we've never properly quantified uh, that number and there has been a lot of investment in naloxone and there's been a lot of people working uh, hard in it over a long period of time. The Scottish programme has been rightly endorsed by the World Health Organisation and others as a kind of gold standard model as to how you should roll it out. Uh, and I think we've done a lot of good research in naloxone here as well, but we've fallen a wee bit behind other people in answering what has become quite a key question. Uh, and... Naloxone is not alone in terms of being a harm reduction intervention that people are looking to criticise. Harm reduction interventions attract controversy uh, in some sections of society and people are looking to undermine them at all possible opportunity. And unless we've got the hard evidence sometimes to go back to them to show them that it works, uh, then that conversation can sometimes be difficult. So we can look to other territories, so particularly British Columbia, they've kind of stolen a march on us in terms of 
really shown how you quantify uh, the impact that naloxone has made. Uh, and we know how seismic their uh, overdose crisis is over there. But they were able to demonstrate the thousands of lives uh, or the thousands of deaths that had been averted uh, due to naloxone, especially in comparison to other interventions like OST uh, and overdose prevention sites. But it was very much the message they were given and the message we would give is naloxone is part of a package of interventions that saves lives that should never be seen as a panacea. And hopefully, over the next year or two, we'll be able to provide some sort of similar estimate for Scotland that looks at the deaths that have been averted during the drug death epidemic we've had in the last 10 or 20 years in Scotland because had it not been for naloxone, the rate of deaths would almost certainly have been higher and would be uh, would much steeper even than what we've experienced over the last four or five years. Yeah, we've got to be able to say that, right? Because that's the thing that I always go back to is had, if we had not had naloxone, it looks like kind of just roughly if you're looking at the figures, there's around a thousand reported um, episodes of people using naloxone every year to save somebody's life. And that's only the ones that get reported. Like, had naloxone not been available, without a doubt, you have to be able to say that the drug deaths would have been even higher. And the other thing I was going to say was there's a lot of uh, benefits, in, including in uh, reducing damage from non-fatal overdoses. So there may be not lives that are saved, but there, there are cases where people might have get, uh, brain damage or uh, other problems. Uh, and the other thing is, and it, this is unmeasurable, but in my view, naloxone was the beginning of a change of culture. It's not just the rise in the deaths, because frankly, I can tell you from working for, with the mainstream media, there isn't a lot of interest in the deaths out with the population, the immediate communities that are affected and families and, and workers and services. But the, the big, the big ch cultural change we have in Scotland is that people are saying something should be done about this, we should be doing something about this, and that's because we've seen that some things can make a difference and empower people who are massively disempowered, people in the communities, frontline staff, uh, and, and people who are carrying naloxone, who are using drugs themselves, and uh, using the opiates themselves, are massively empowered by the fact that naloxone's out there, and it, it, it makes it an agenda, there are things that can be done, these aren't desperate situations where everybody's powerless or these deaths aren't inevitable. Yeah, and sometimes you need something tangible, like a tool, uh, and naloxone is a tangible tool that yeah. people can people can carry, people can use, uh, and you're right, once people have had the experience of using it, uh, they, be, they can become advocates for naloxone in their own right. Mm. And uh, one of the most powerful things I think I've found in my research is individual stories. Individual narratives of naloxone use are very, very powerful tools uh, to get other people uh, on side and support naloxone. And we've seen that not just here in Scotland, we've seen that in other countries. Australia is very big on the naloxone narrative at the moment. Uh, again, British Columbia has been very big on that. And I think these things are important, not just in winning over uh, drug user perceptions or their community perceptions, but also general population uh, perceptions uh, as well. And my last question that I've got on naloxone is what is Nessie currently telling us about naloxone and what do we need to do to improve the programme? Uh, well, N Nessie naloxone data is great. So uh, Nessie naloxone data shows a very, very clear uh, clear trajectory uh, upwards since the naloxone programme was brought in. So it measures a few different things in relation to naloxone. But the data we tend to report on is first of all in relation to supply so we ask people if they've been supplied with naloxone in the last 12 months. And among people who inject drugs, eh, that's went up from around 15% in 2011 when the programme had just really kicked off. 
to around 65% now, so around two-thirds of people who inject drugs have been supplied with an Aloxone kit in the last 12 months. Uh, and that, I'm not aware of it anywhere else in the world that's got an estimate uh, of reach or adoption that high. That's a very, very encouraging estimate in terms of uh, the supply that's out there. It's because there are so many different outlets for people to access the Aloxone across Scotland. Where we've not perhaps done as well as one of the other things we monitor is in relation to carriage or possession as the Americans would call it. Uh, so very few people that we interview tend to have naloxone on them and their person. So while we're very good at getting naloxone out, uh, we, we have, we've perhaps struggled to create an environment where people feel comfortable about carrying naloxone about in their person. Now there might be reasons for that. Uh, a lot of people do take drugs in a domestic environment and I think that's absolutely fine. Naloxone's kept there where all their other drugs and equipment's kept. Uh, but I think if we'd encourage people to carry it at all times, they may encounter an overdose when they're out. They might see a peer or they might see somebody else and they're not going to be able to do anything if they don't have naloxone on them. But one of the barriers people have reported is this perception that they might be stopped and searched. Uh, and we've ha- we've heard similar barriers to carrying things like fresh injecting equipment as well uh, in relation to the HIV outbreak, and that's something I know you guys have worked with uh, Police Scotland uh, over the last couple of years to try and create an environment where people don't uh, perceive that uh, anything they've got on their person uh, will be interpreted as drug paraphernalia and uh, lead to a, kind of, a more fuller uh, search, uh, which is something we really need to kind of get past. So the other thing that Nessie now asks about, Andy, is um, public injecting. And I guess there was additional questions added in because of the proposal for a drug consumption room. And I've actually nicked your phrase quite a few on quite a few media interviews that I've done, that uh, Glasgow's got the most compelling case in Europe for a drug consumption room. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Sackett thinks I nicked that phrase from him, but I don't recall the conversation. So maybe... Maybe maybe there's double plagiarism going on here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think I just say that at the, at the time that it was picked up by a lot of people and ended up being quite a sound bite at the time. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, we added lots of... Nessie had a, almost an extra module added to it when the drug consumption room proposals were on the table for Glasgow uh, because we felt as if we didn't have a lot of baseline information on a lot of the indicators that the, the consumption room would be measured against. Uh, and one of the things was uh, public injecting or people injecting public places. So we added various questions in about that and we tried to align them next to questions that were in NEO as well, which is the Needle Exchange database, to try and uh, triangulate the data we had on that. Uh, and yeah, we, we ended up collecting good data on that, analysing it and showing that as well as homelessness and cocaine injecting, another strong driver and predictor of HIV infection in the city was public injecting which very much we sensed from a lot of the anecdotal reports we got early on uh, in the outbreak. So one of the other questions we asked in that study was drug consumption rooms. Would people use them? Because we we had a lot of intelligence that uh, we knew they had worked in other cities across the world that had had HIV outbreaks. We knew Glasgow had this compelling case, not just the HIV outbreak but the botulism outbreak high levels of public injecting, high levels of overdose, a, a very concentrated area of street-based drug injecting, particularly in the east end of the city centre. All the all the boxes that you would tick for a drug consumption room were there in Glasgow and more. So 
uh, we did ask, uh, we felt as if one of the voices that really needed to be heard in this were the users themselves. Uh, so building on some early studies through NEO by John Campbell, we added that question in uh, and we just published that data, I think over the last couple of weeks now, uh, which showed uh, that nearly 80% of people inject drugs uh, in Glasgow would use a drug consumption room if it was there. So we felt that was very important because previous work we had done, uh, particularly the media study we'd done, uh, on drug consumption rooms was really clear in highlighting that, that the user voice uh, was lacking in the debate uh, and wasn't amplified enough and certainly that study that study actually gave amazing coverage in the media given COVID-19 was going on we thought it would be lucky to get a wee uh, column in page 9 or 10 but it actually got quite a big splash uh, and I think that was important uh, and the only thing we've really got well, there's a couple of things left, I think, because, we, again, we're trying to build the evidence base for the consumption room. But the next study we're hopefully going to publish in the next couple of months is on uh, the general population voice, which, again, I think has been lacking. You can read it below some of the articles in the paper, and I think that attracts a certain type of individual. Uh, but we've done a more kind of representative sample of the population to see what they think about drug consumption rooms. Uh, and I won't spoil any of the findings for that, but I think that's it's an interesting and positive response. I think last on the list is business owners. So I think if anybody wants to fund a study on what local businesses think, I think that's where we want to put our efforts next. That's presuming we have local businesses after this lockdown, <laughs> so... I know, they'll all be virtual. <laughs> Well, I think that's probably us come to the end of our podcast for this evening. It's getting late, the sun is going down, but, uh, but thank you very much, Andy, for, for joining us, us this evening uh, and, and for letting us all know all about uh, your work with uh, within HIV, Naloxone, uh, Nessie. So much, so much, uh, a broad scope range uh, across the drugs field in Scotland. So thanks very much for that. So Andy mentioned there um, the report on, on people's... Uh, who use drugs, willingness to use uh, safer drug consumption facilities. And that report's actually on the SDF website, so if you want to head there, you can find that. If you go on to the SDF YouTube as well, you'll also be able to see Andy's recent uh, webinar appearance uh, where he was talking about the HIV outbreak uh, within the lens of the COVID-19 outbreak. So thanks very much, Andy. I think it's been, we probably could have kept you here for a couple hours chatting about all the different stuff. Um, but yeah, it's been really great having you on. So thanks very much for your first appearance on the podcast and no doubt we'll have you back on at some point. No, thanks for having me. It's been, it's been enjoyable. Grateful for the opportunity. Cheers. Excellent. So if you enjoyed the podcast, uh, make sure you share it with your friends, subscribe, give it a rating and until next time, we'll see you then.